Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac podcast. <clears throat> Which is the podcast of excellence. We are talking about, sorry, I just had to close the door. Part 11, Chapter 1. Feels like 90% of the decline just happened in that short chapter. Really just stacked it in. Um, just before we move into the podcast, I should just say, today's uh, chapter... Chapter 2 goes for, I think, 50 years. It's like 40 pages or something. It's insanely long. It's 10 chapters in one. Um, so, I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to break it up into halves. I'm going to break it up into two parts, I should say. I don't know if I'll go the full half. But, um, yeah. Just so you know, we're going to discuss it over two days and read it over two days instead of having to read like an hour and a half worth of chapter. I am exaggerating, it's not that long, but it's, I think it's close to 40 pages, which is, you know, that's an hour of reading. <sighs> okay. Um, Jan Brunt says, This novel feels like a chronicle of bad decisions and missed opportunities, the point being I suppose that every small detail contributes to the outcome. What if Tom had married Anna? The flower girl and they'd had a house full of children. What if Tony hadn't convinced Tom to buy a cr the crop in advance? What if old Frau Buddenbrook hadn't given huge inheritance to Tiberius? But beneath these questions lies the essence of the characters, for the most part selfish, haughty, vain and remote. Maybe it could have been any couldn't have been any different because they collectively lack ingenuity and grit. In the end, the four siblings just weren't very successful, and that was enough to sink the family's fortunes. Pretty much. Um, yeah, just... It's a story about people that, honestly, are not that... Uh, I'm not going to say not interesting. That's not really what I want to say. They're just not that... Um, I don't know what I'm saying. I don't know what I'm saying. My brain doesn't work. Who cares? Who cares what I've got to say? <laughs> it's a story about people that we don't get to know them that well, I don't think. And not that much happens. It's, it's the pacing of this book really didn't work for me. Like, I feel like in such a long book, we're looking at it like, you know, we're nearing up to a thousand pages of the book. And if you compare it to like a thousand pages of War and Peace, so much more happens in a thousand pages in War and Peace. So much more. I feel like more happens in like book one of War and Peace than what happens in this whole novel. So, the characters are just... Um, incompetent, I feel, is what I'm trying to say. Chapter 2, I'm going to read it until I can't stand to read it anymore, and then I'm going to stop. It goes like this. The alarm clock went off with cruel alacrity. It was a hoarse rattling and clattering that it made, rather than a ringing, for it was old and worn out, but it kept on for a painfully long time, for it had been thoroughly wound up. Hanno Buddenbrook was startled by his inmost depths. It was like this every morning. 
He is very entrails rebelled in rage, protest and despair at the onslaught of this at once cruel and faithful monitor standing on the bedside table close to his ear. However, he did not get up or even change his position in the bed. He only wrenched himself away from some blurred dream of the early morning and opened his eyes. It was perfectly dark in the wintry room. He could distinguish nothing, not even the hands on the clock, but he knew it was six o'clock because last night he had set his alarm for six. Last night, and as he lay on his back with his nerves rasped by the shock of waking, struggling for sufficient resolution to make a light and jump out of bed, sufficient resolution... What? Every Sorry, I read that twice. To jump out of bed, everything that had filled his mind yesterday came gradually back into his consciousness. It was Sunday evening, and after having been maltreated by her breast for several days on end, he had been taken as a reward to a performance of Lohengrin. He had looked forward for a whole week to this evening with a joy which absorbed his entire existence. Only it was a pity that on such occasions the full pleasure of the anticipation had to be marred by disagreeable commonplaces that went up to the very last minute. But at length Saturday came, school was over for the week, and her Brech's little drill had bored and buzzed away in the mouth for the last time. Now everything was out of the way and done with, for he had obstinately put off his preparation for Monday until after the opera. What was Monday to him? Was it likely it would ever dawn? Who believes in Monday when he is to hear Long Harin on Sunday evening? He would get up early on Monday and get the wretched stuff done, and that was all there was to it. Thus he went about free from care, fondled the coming joy in his heart, dreamed at his piano, and forgot all pleasantness to come. And then the dream became reality came over him with all its enchantment and consecration, all its secret revelations and tremors, its sudden inner emotion, its extravagant, unquenchable intoxication. It was true that the music of the overture was rather too much for the cheap violins in the orchestra, and the fat, conceited-looking long in with straw-coloured hair came in rather hindside, foremost in his little boat. And his guardian, her Stefan Kistenmarker, had sat in the next box and grumbled about the boys being taken away from his lessons and having his mind distracted like that. But the sweet, exalted splendour of the music had borne him away upon its wings. The end had come at length. The singing, shimmering joy was quenched and silent. He had found himself back home in his room with a burning head and the consciousness that only a few hours of sleep there in his bed separated him from dull, everyday existence, and he had been overpowered by an attack of the complete despondency which was all too familiar an experience. Again he had learned that beauty can pierce one like a pain, and that it can sink profoundly into shame and a longing despair that utterly consume the courage and energy necessary to the life of every day. His despondency weighed him down like mountains, and once more he told himself, as he had done before, that this was more than his own individual burden of weakness that rested upon him, that his burden was one which he had borne upon his soul from the beginning of time, and must one day sink under it at last. 
He had wound the alarm clock and gone to sleep and slept that dead and heavy sleep that comes when one wishes never to wake again, and when Monday was here and he had not prepared a single lesson, he sat up and lighted the bedside candle, but his arms and shoulders felt so cold that he lay down again and pulled up the covers. The hand pointed to ten minutes after six, so it was absurd to get up now. He should hardly have time to make a beginning, for there was preparation in nearly every lesson, and the time he had fixed was already past. It was a certain it was as certain then as it had seemed to him yesterday that he would be called up in Latin and chemistry. It was certainly to be expected, in all human probability, it would happen. The names at the end of the alphabet had lately been called in the Ovid class, and presumably they would begin again at the beginning, but after all it wasn't so absolutely certain beyond a peradventure there were exceptions to every rule. Chance sometimes worked wonders, he knew. He sank deeper and deeper into these false and plausible speculations. His thoughts began to run in together. He was asleep. The little schoolboy bedchamber, cold and bare with the copper plate of the Sistine Madonna over the bed, the extension table in the middle and the untidy bookshelf, a stiff-legged mahogany desk, the harmonium and the small washstand that lay silent in the flickering light of the candle. The window was covered with icy crystals, and the blind was up in order that the light might come earlier. And Hanno slept, his cheek pressed into the pillow, his lips closed, his eyelashes lying close upon his cheek. He slept with an expression of the most utter abandonment to slumber, the soft light brown hair clustering about his temples, and slowly the candle flame lost its reddish-yellow glow as the pale dun-coloured dawn stole into the room through the icy coating on the window pane. At seven he woke once more with a start of fear. He must get up and take upon himself the burden of the day. There was no way out of it. Only a short hour now remained before school would begin. Time pressed. There was no thought of preparation now, and yet he continued to lie, full of exasperation and rebellion against this brutal compulsion that was upon him to forsake his warm bed in the frosty dawn dawning and go out into the world, into contact with harsh and unfriendly people. Oh, only two little tiny minutes more, he begged of his pillow, in overwhelming tenderness. And then he gave himself a full five minutes more out of sheer bravado and closed his eyes, opening one from time to time to stare despairingly at the clock, which wept stupidly on in its insensate, accurate way. Ten minutes after seven o'clock, he tore himself out of bed and began to move about the room with frantic haste. He let the candle burn, for the daylight was not enough by itself. He breathed upon a crystal, and looking out, saw a thick mist abroad. He was unutterably cold, and a shiver sometimes shook his entire body. The ends of his fingers burned. They were all so swollen that he could do nothing with the nail brush. As he washed the upper parts of his body, his almost lifeless hand let fall the sponge, and he stood a moment stiff and helpless, like steaming like a sweating horse. At last he was dressed, dull-eyed and breathless. He stood at the table, collected his despairing senses with a jerk, and began to put together the books he was likely to need today, murmuring in an anguished voice, Religion, Latin, Chemistry and shuffling together the wretched ink-spotted paper volumes. Yes, he was already quite tall, was little Johann. 
He was more than 15 years old and no longer wore a sailor costume, but a light brown jacket with a blue and white spotted cravat. Over his waistcoat, he wore a long, thin gold chain that had belonged to his grandfather, and on the fourth finger of his broad but delicately articulated right hand was the old seal ring with the green stone. It was his now. He pulled on his heavy winter jacket, put on his hat, snatched his school bag, extinguished the candle, and dashed down the stair to the ground floor, past the stuffed bear, and into the dining room on the right, Fraulein Clementine, his mother's new factotum, a thin girl with curls on her forehead, a pointed nose, and short-sighted eyes, already sat at the breakfast table. How late is it, really? he asked between his teeth, though he already knew with great precision. A quarter before eight, she answered, pointing with a thin red rheumatic-looking hand at the clock on the wall. You must get along, Hanno, she said. She set a steaming cup of cocoa before him and pushed the butter, and butter, bread, salt, and an egg cup towards his place. He said no more, clutched a roll, and began standing with his hat on his bag under his arm to swallow his cocoa. The hot drink hurt the back of his tooth, which Herbert had just been working at. He let half of it stand, pushed away the egg, and with a sound intended for an adieu, ran out of the house. It was ten minutes to eight when he left the garden and the little brick villa behind him and dashed along the wintry avenue. Ten, nine, eight minutes more. And it was a long way. He could scarcely see for the fog. He drew it in with his breath and breathed it out again. This thick, icy cold fog, with all the power of his narrow chest, he stopped his still throbbing tooth with his tongue and did fearful violence to his leg muscles. He was bathed in perspiration, yet he felt frozen in every limb. He began to have a stitch in his side. The morsel of breakfast revolted in his stomach against this morning jaunt which was it was taking. He felt nauseous, and his heart fluttered and trembled so that it took away his breath. The castle gate, only the castle gate, and it was four minutes to eight. As he panted on through the streets in an extremity of mingled pain, perspiration, and nausea, he looked on all sides for his fellow pupils. No, there was no one else. They were all on the spot, and now it was beginning to strike eight. (coughs) Bells were ringing all over the town, and the chimes of St. Mary's were playing in celebration of this moment. Now let us all thank God. They played half the notes falsely. They had no idea of rhythm, and they were badly in want of tuning. Thus Hanno, in the madness of despair, but what was, excuse me, what was that to him? He was late. There was no longer any room for a doubt. The school clock was usually a little behind, but not enough to help him this time. He stared hopelessly into people's faces as they passed him. They were going to their offices or about their business. They were in no particular hurry. Nothing was threatening them. Some of them looked at him and smiled at his distracted appearance and sulky looks. He was beside himself at these smiles. What were they smiling at, these comfortable, unhurried people? He wanted to shout after them and tell them their smiling was very uncivil. Perhaps they would just enjoy falling down dead in front of the closed entrance gate of the school. 
The prolonged shrill ringing, which was the signal for morning prayers, struck on his ear while he was still twenty paces from the long red wall with the two cast-iron gates which separated the court of the school building from the street. He felt that his legs had no more power in advance. He simply let his body fall forward. The legs moved willy-nilly to prevent his stumbling, and thus he staggered on and arrived at the gate just as the bell had ceased ringing. Her Schlemiel, the porter, a heavy man with the face and rough beard of a labourer, was just about to close the gate. Well, he said, and let Buttonbrook slip through. Perhaps, perhaps he might still be saved. What he had to do now was to slip unobserved into his classroom and wait there until the end of prayers, which were held in the drill hall, and to act as if everything were in order. Panting, exhausted, in a cold perspiration, he slunk across the courtyard and through the folding doors with glass panes that divided it from the interior. Everything in the establishment was now new, clean, and adequate. The time had been ripe, and the grey crumbling walls of the ancient monastic school had been levelled to the ground to make room for the spacious, airy, and imposing new building. The style of the whole had been preserved the whole the whole had been preserved, and corridors and cloisters were still spanned by the fine old Gothic vaulting, but the lighting and heating arrangements and ventilation of the classrooms, the comfort of the master's rooms, the equipment of the halls for the teaching of chemistry, physics and design, all this had been carried out on the most modern lines with respect to comfort and sanitation. The exhausted Hanno stuck close to the wall and kept his eyes open as he stole along Heaven be praised. The corridors were empty. He heard distantly the hubbub made by the hosts of masters and pupils going into the drill hall to receive there a little spiritual strengthening for the labours of the week. But here everything was empty and still, and his road up the broad linoleum-covered stairs lay free. He stole up cautiously on his tiptoes, holding his breath, straining his ears for some sounds from above. His classroom, the lower second of the real school, was in the first story, opposite the stairs, and the door was open. Crouched on the top step, he peered down the long corridor, on both sides of which were the entrances to the various classrooms, with porcelain signs above them. Three rapid, noiseless steps forward, and he was in his own room. It was empty. The curtains of the three large windows were still drawn, and the gas was burning in the chandelier with a soft hissing noise. Green shades diffused the light over the three rows of desks. These desks each had room for two pupils. They were made of light-coloured wood, and opposite them, in remote and edifying austerity, stood the master's platform with a blackboard behind it. A yellow wainscoting ran around the lower part of the wall and above it. The bare white washed surface was decorated with a few maps. A second blackboard stood on an easel by the master's chair. Hanno went to his place, which was nearly in the centre of the room. He stuffed his bag into the desk and sank upon the hard seat, laid his arms on the sloping lid and rested his head upon them. He had a sensation of unspeakable relief. The room was bare, hard, hateful and ugly and the burden of the whole threatening forenoon with its numerous perils lay before him, but for the moment he was safe. <coughs> Excuse me. He had saved his skin and could take things as they come. 
The first lesson, Herr Balistrat's class in religions, religious instruction, was comparatively harmless. He could see by the vibration of the little strips of paper over the ventilator next to the ceiling that warm air was streaming in, and the gas too did its share to heat the room. He could actually stretch out here and feel his stiffened limbs slowly thawing. The heat mounted to his head. He was very pleasant, but not quite healthful. It made his ears buzz and his eyes heavy. A sudden noise behind him made him start and turn around, and behold, from behind the last bench rose the head and shoulders of Kai, Count Moln. He crawled out, did this young man, got up, shook himself, slapped his hands together to get the dust off, and came up to Hanno with a beaming face. Oh, it's you, Hanno, he said, and I crawled back there because I took you for a piece of faculty when you came in. His voice cracked as he spoke because it was changing, which Hanno's had not yet begun to do. To do. He had kept pace with Hanno in his growth, but his looks had not altered, and he still wore a dingy suit of no particular colour with a button or so missing, and a big patch in the seat. His hands too were not quite clean, narrow and aristocratic looking though they were, with long slender fingers and tapering nails, but his brow was still pure and alabaster beneath the carelessly parted reddish-yellow hair that fell over it and the glance of the sparkling blue eyes was as keen and as profound as ever. In fact, the contrast was even more striking between his neglected toilet and his racial purity of his face, with its delicate bony structure, slightly aquiline nose and short upper lip, upon which the down was beginning to show. Oh, Kai, said Hanno, with a wry face, putting his hand to his heart. How can you frighten me like that? What are you doing up here? Why are you hiding? Did you come late too? Dear me, no, Kai said. I've been here a long time, though one doesn't look forward to getting back to the old place when Monday morning comes around. You must know that yourself, old fellow. No, I only stopped up here to have a little game. The deep one seems to be able to recite it with his religion to hunt people down to prayers. Well, I get behind him and I manage to keep close behind his back whichever way he turns, the old mystic. So in the end he goes off and I can stop up here. But what about you? He said sympathetically, sitting down beside Hanno on the bench. You had to run, didn't you? Poor old chap. You look perfectly worn out. Your hair is sticking to your forehead. He took a ruler from the table and carefully combed little Hanno's hair with it. You overslept, didn't you? Look, he interrupted himself. Here I am, sitting on the sacred seat of number one, Adolf Tottenhalt's place. Well, it won't hurt me for once, I suppose. You overslept, didn't you? Hanno had put his head down on his arms again. I was at the opera last night, he said, heaving a long sigh. Right, I'd forgot that. Well, how was it? Was it beautiful? He got no answer. You are a lucky fellow, after all, went on Kai, persevering. I've never been in the theatre, not a single time in my whole life, and there isn't the smallest prospect for my going, at least not for years. If only one did not have to pay for it afterwards, said Hanno gloomily. The headache next morning, well, I know how that feels. Anyhow, Kai stooped and picked up his friend's coat and hat, which lay on the floor beside the bench, and carried them quietly out into the corridor. Then I make, I take for granted you haven't done the verses from the metamorphoses, he asked as he came back. No, said Hanno. 
Have you prepared for the geography test? I haven't done anything. I don't know anything, said Hanno. Not the chemistry, nor the English. Benissimo. Then there is a pair of us, brothers in arms, said Kai, with obvious gratification. I'm in exactly the same boat, he announced jauntily. I did not work Saturday because the next day was Sunday, and I did not work on Sunday because it was Sunday. No nonsense, it was mostly because I had something better to do. He spoke with sudden earnestness, and a slight flush spread over his face. Yes, perhaps it may be rather lively today, Hanno. If I get only one more bad mark, I shan't go up, said Johan, and I'm sure to get it when I'm called up for Latin. The letter B comes next, Kai, so there's no not much help for it. We shall see. What does Caesar say? Dangers may threaten me in the rear, but when they see the front of Caesar... But Kai did not finish. He was feeling rather out of sorts. He went to the platform and sat down in order to show that they were incapable of being led away by his ugliness to blame him unjustly. The lesson continued. Various pupils were called up to display their knowledge, touching Job, the man from the land of Uz, Gottlob Kasborn, son of the unfortunate merchant P. Philip Kasborn, got an excellent mark despite the late distressing circumstances of his family because he knew that Job had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 asses, and a large number of servants. Then the Bibles, which were already open, were permitted to be opened, and they went on reading. Wherever her Balistrat thought explanation necessary, he puffed himself up, said, well, and after these customary preliminaries made a little speech upon the point in question, interspersed with abstract moral observations. Not a soul listened. A slumberous peace reigned in the room. The heat, with the continuous influx of warm air and the still-lighted gas burners, had become oppressive, and the air was well-nigh exhausted by these five, twenty-five breathing and steaming organisms. The warmth, the purring of the gas, and the drone of the reader's voice lulled them all to the point where they were more asleep than awake. Kai, Count Mole, however, had a volume of Edgar Allan Poe's tales inside his Bible, and read in it. Supporting his head on his hand, Hanno Buttonbrook leaned back, sank down in his seat, and looked with relaxed mouth and hot swimming eyes at the Book of Job, in which all the lines ran together into a black haze. Now and then... As the grail motif for the wedding march came into his mind, his lids drooped, and he felt an inward soothing, and then he would wish that his safe and peaceful morning hour might go on forever. Yet, it ended, as all things must end. The shrill sound of the bell, clanging and echoing through the corridor, shook the twenty-five brains out of their slumberous calm. All right, I think that's a good spot to to pause for the for tonight. The end of the lesson, the bells rang. It ended as all things must end. Seems like a little pause moment, doesn't it? So, we'll leave it there, part one of this chapter. And uh, I'll see you tomorrow.